Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust proof stainless steel hardware, weather ready teak, and quick dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com/acast and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com/acast. And we come to the conclusion of our read of the first version of Lyrical Ballads. Want to know what I've been on about for the past few years with the term ontological epistemological crisis? Well, here's your answer with a close exploration of Wordsworth's Tintern Abbey, the poem that closes the volume. The Cannonball is part of the Agora Podcast Network. If you're online, check us out at thecannonballpodcast.wordpress.com, on Twitter at CannonballPod, and on Facebook at The Cannonball Podcast. And if you like our show but want to know more about film and what goes into the making of it, Check out Beyond the Big Screen, a podcast that goes into the intricate details, historical, philosophical, and otherwise, behind major motion pictures. And if you're really hankering for more drama, friends of the show Andrew Fanacuca and Anna Weinberg have put together a biographical discussion show about the life of Alexandre Dumas called Two Musketeers. If you like that, they've entered it in for competition in the Tongle creative community. Go vote for them at the link provided. Cannonball, a podcast attempt to read all of the books in Harold Bloom's list of the works of the Western canon. This is Claude Myron Guzer, and with me as always is Daniel Doherty. Daniel, how you doing, man? Hey, hey, I'm uh, I'm doing well. I am, I don't know, I'm looking forward to talking some poetry because we're actually, uh, <laughs> Claude and I were just talking before, the, uh, before we started recording, um, and I mentioned that this was one where I never, I always love putting like how I've been stupid out front. On these episodes, Claude, um, I just like the, I just like being upfront about that. But, but this is one that I had a bit of a hard time kind of wrapping my head around. Um, mm. So I'm really looking forward to taking kind of a, a deeper dive onto. Um, well, I guess I'm introducing it. The the poem uh, lines composed a few miles above Tintern Abbey on revisiting the banks of the Wye during a tour, July 13, 1798, by uh, <laughs> by our boy William Wordsworth getting getting his worth out of those words. Hell of a title there. Now, this is the, we're doing this because this is the end of, this is the last poem in the first edition of Lyrical Ballads. And we're sort of talking about how, you know, they open with Coleridge's Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner, which is really sort of throwing down the gauntlet. Mm -hmm. And there there are other, we were talking about this when we were doing the, the whole of the volume. There are other sort of stabs of the Gothic. There, there's the Gothic sort of threaded throughout, mm-hmm. and there's that kind of material throughout. It never quite gets back to that sustained supernatural weirdness, but you know, the, there are sort of thematic elements here and there in the rest of it, and it, it alternates back and forth between, um, you know, the Gothic parts, the sort of natural observation. The, I guess what you could call the testimonies of those who otherwise would not be able to mm-hmm. testify themselves mm-hmm. and other kinds of observations about the necessity of experience in some ways. And we end with this poem that to my mind, is sort of a, a summation and a mission statement all at once. Hmm. So if the 
you know, we were talking when we were doing the background that, you know, what makes lyrical ballads, lyrical ballads, what makes it a watershed volume, what makes it stand out from the other stuff in the same mode that Wordsworth and Coleridge were, were, you know, quite obviously drawing from. Mm -hmm. It was the sort of German transcendentalism that Wordsworth was getting sort of secondhand from Coleridge because Coleridge was the one who knew German. Yeah, but he <laughs> would, they would, you know, have their, their long going convert, you know, take, yeah. taking their, their long walks and having their conversations about the, the latest uh, ideas from Europe. And this to me is where Wordsworth takes those ideas and goes off the deep end mm-hmm. in, in ways that I think were somewhat troubling to Coleridge. Well, it's not just me thinking that they were troubling to Coleridge. Uh, <laughs> Coleridge says, Hey man, let's pull back a little right, bit. Right. I can show you exactly where and how. Um, but it's also a poem that um, it inaugurates psychology or the consciousness as the material for epic verse. Did you realize that this was an epic, Daniel? I did not. I did not. Yeah. Okay. This, um, Wordsworth is going to turn back to that when he writes the preludes, mm-hmm. which is sort of more fully in the vein of autobiographical epic, but this is autobiographical epic or autobiography as epic. Oh, Okay. Yeah. Now you, you'll, you'll have to, um, remind me kind of like in the epic is kind of a technical term in, uh, mm-hmm. in poetics. So what, what exactly mm-hmm. does calling, uh, this poem epic like refer to? Or I guess is that our, we're getting into that, I suppose. <laughs> well, okay. Let's start with the verse form. Did you recognize the verse form at all? Um, no, not even with all the po- poetics boot camp that you put me through. Uh, <laughs> this is one I will say this is one that I I never read aloud to myself. The times that I read it it oh, was okay. around other people uh so I didn't want to read aloud. So I, <laughs> in my defense I might have gotten it. <laughs> um after all the time we spent with Milton you didn't recognize it. Get out of town. <laughs> it's Miltonian. Okay. It's it's blank verse. Yeah. It's unrhymed yeah. epic pentameter. All right. And the Miltonian tags are are like okay. Five years have passed, five summers with a length of five long winters, and again I hear these waters rolling from their mountain springs with a sweet inland murmur. Once again do I behold these steps and these steep and lofty cliffs, which on a wild secluded scene impress thoughts of more deep seclusion and connect the landscape with the quiet of the sky. The day has come when I again repose here under this dark sycamore. And view these plots of cottage ground, these orchard tufts, which at this season with their unripe fruits among the woods and copses lose themselves, nor with the green and simple hue disturb the wild green landscape. Once again, I see these hedgerows, hardly hedgerows, little lines of sportive wood run wild, these pastoral farms green to the very door, and wreaths of smoke sent up in silence from among the trees with some uncertain notice, as might seem of vagrant dwellers in the houseless wood of some hermit's cave, whereby his fire, the hermit sits alone. What word do I keep repeating, Daniel? Uh, again and again. <laughs> again and again. I repeat again. <laughs> well, that's a, that's an echo of Milton. Hang on hmm. a second. I should have my, um, you know, if if I was a good podcaster, I would have had my my Milton prepared. But hang on one second. <laughs> Let me read the first book of Paradise Lost. That's right. I can uh, I, I can entertain the folks okay. while you're while you're looking that up. So uh, okay, oh, <laughs> have you got it? Yeah. Open up. Open up the first book of, of Paradise Lost. the The repeated word the repeated word in in Tintoretti is again. But look at Paradise Lost of man's first disobedience and the fruit of that forbidden tree whose mortal taste brought death into the world and all our woe with loss of Eden until one greater man restore us and regain the blissful seat. Sing heavenly muse that on the secret top of Oreb or of Sinai did inspire that shepherd who first taught the chosen seed in the beginning how the heaven and earth rose out of chaos, or if Sion held delight be more. And so Loa's work that flowed first by the oracle of God, I thence invoke thy aid uh, to my adventurous song that with no middle flight intends to soar above the Onion Mount while it pursues things unintended yet in prose or rhyme. And chiefly thou, O spirit, that dost prefer before all temples the upright heart and pure, instruct me for thou knowest thou from the first was present. (laughs) 
<laughs> or with mighty wings outspread. Dub's like, okay, what word do I keep repeating? Yeah. So, th- th- so there it is in Milton. It's first. And so we have again. <laughs> yeah. Um, oh, man. Milton has. Okay. Let's get Bloomy in for a second. And, and <laughs> I mean, it, let's um, do. I mean, it's, you know. But I, 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 I often hesitate to, to drag Bloom into it. But I, I think this is a moment where you can talk about Milton feeling his belatedness hmm. and trying to assert his primacy and Wordsworth asserting his belatedness. Hmm. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> now, I think that has to do not just with the structure of the poem, but with the content of the poem and what Wordsworth thinks the poem can do. Hmm. But, um, the, the, the fact that this is coming back again to this place, linking it back to Milton with the verse form and this re- repetition of, of belatedness mm-hmm. from the very beginning, the sort of trope right there. He's, he's making this case that this is a sort of coming back, mm. right? Yeah. Which, okay. which is, which is, I think, uh, well, I don't know. It seems a bit uh, almost presumptuous to adopt the Miltonian epic form for an autobiographical sketch. Uh, yeah. Yeah. That's, I mean, that, that strikes me as being uh, a, a bit on the, uh, on the modern side, <laughs> you know, honestly, like that's a bit like kind of like keener and looking kind of looking toward, uh, anyway, sorry. <laughs> that's, that's just kind of what love tells me about that, but I, I see now. Yeah. The, no, the poetic a- kind of, uh, echoes and tying it back and like, I mean, is it a restoration that he's going for? I guess is this some kind of like is this almost an act of restorationist reformationism on English verse? Maybe like trying to seek the yeah. early church. Well, it, it's weird. I mean, I I wish I had the time or energy or inclination <laughs> to do the research on this. Um, no, I mean you have to consider um, Milton's status. Mm-hmm. In the 18th century, how really radical and weird he was. There's something about Wordsworth's use of him here, which signifies that Milton has now been, I suppose, canonized. Huh, yeah. That yeah. now it's, it's sort of like he's become or becoming an old standard where the 18th century, like for, if the, the general mode of your writing is, Heroic couplets, mm-hmm. right? The, the rhyme dynamic pentameter. Yeah. And your mode is primarily satirical and social. Then Milton just doesn't fit. And this is this very different, very strange poetic, which looks to Milton not as the odd man out or the oddball or the weirdo, but as some sort of primal piece of, of English literature. Okay. Yeah. So I think what he is doing is sort of like establishing Milton as a forerunner. Yeah. In some ways. I'm, and I'm realizing now, like, uh, so it's sometimes easy to lose track of the kind of ebbing and flowing, uh, reputation that a work has throughout its history in a, in a given literature, a given body of literature. Um, so mm-hmm. that like, I, I was kind of making my comments assuming that, well, once Milton was written and Milton was Milton, then everyone thereafter considered him one of the great, like whatever's. And of course, like, you know, again, feeling kind of dumb, like, of course it wasn't always like that. That position had to be established in what you might call pseudo canon yeah. or a proto canon, um, which Wordsworth had a hand in, thus shaping my thought about what I just read by Wordsworth. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> All right. <clears throat> so let's go back to the title. Read the title for me one more time, Daniel. Yeah. So back to the title, it's lines composed a few miles above Tintern Abbey, on revisiting the banks of the Wye during a tour, July 13, 1798. Okay, what information do we have in that title? Well, quite a bit. So um, he's, uh, you know, plotting himself in space there in, uh, I believe in Wales, I think is where the, the River Wye is in South, in South Wales. Mm-hmm. Um they're doing a tour, so you know, having having a look at all the wonderful sights there in that beautiful country there, the hilly country mm-hmm. of Wales. Um, it's in summer, high summer, July thirteen. Yep. Um, and when it says a few miles above Tintern Abbey, I'm assuming that just means kind of like upstream from 
rather than like yeah. in, in distance away. I don't know. Like I was just kind of how the, how that's yeah. used in a geographical sense. Um, right. Yeah. 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 So, yeah. So we have the time and place. You're exactly right. He's, he's positioning the composition of this poem in time and space mm-hmm. much like a portrait painter would do. Hmm. Right. Or, or a landscape artist, sure. excuse me, not portrait painting landscape. artist. Yeah. So I, I think the best purchase we can sort of start with on this poem is that it's a kind of landscape poem. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and we have to put ourselves into the position of someone who experiences the world without mediation or without as much mediation as we have now. Mm. So, you know, we experience the world. I, I'm talking to you through a screen. Yes. <laughs> yes. This mediated device, <laughs> which is allowing us to communicate with each other. Um, <clears throat> in the 19th century, there was no computer. There was no Skype. There was no podcast. There was, you know, none of this stuff. There was no television. There, there, there were no screens. Mm-hmm. If you wanted a visual representation, re presentation of a scene you had to get a landscape painting Mm -hmm. so the landscape painting was a kind of virtual reality which would allow you to re-experience the the being there if you can't be there you can project yourself into it with the painting um the poem i think is wordsworth's attempt to use poetry as a kind of virtual reality. Hmm. This is, if you can't have the experience of being there and being in communion with the place and with the people, Mm -hmm. then what you can have is the poem. And the poem actually performs a therapeutic function. Being in the natural world heals the rift between self and world. Mm -hmm. Now, remember back when we were talking about this with Milton, Milton saw the fall not just as um, uh, uh, a sort of rift between, you know, the human and the divine, but it was also the insertion of consciousness into the world. Remember how, how, before Satan could become Satan, he had to become self-aware. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Right? Yeah. So self-awareness and self-consciousness <clears throat> in Milton is the source of alienation. Same goddamn thing in Wordsworth. Hmm. And it's taken for granted. Hmm. It, it's kind of taken as a given that self-consciousness, self-awareness is a, an alienating factor. And what revisiting the landscape can do is it's therapeutic. It can, it can perform some kind of therapeutic function to heal that rift. Not, not in a permanent way, because I think in Wordsworth, um, that doesn't happen until you're dead. Right, right. There, there's this really creepy way. <laughs> I think it's creepy. Um, <clears throat> and this was, uh, suggested. Excuse me, to a friend of mine uh, who I, I think I brought up here before, Art Zolarula, who mm-hmm. is um, a romanticist and a poet himself. And I believe in his dissertation, he'd taken on the idea that there's this aspect of Wordsworth that wants to re- reunify with nature to the point that it becomes a kind of death drive, yeah. that, that the reunification is well, when can you heal that rift between self and world? Well, when you aren't thinking anymore well, and when do you get to that point I'm, yeah it's like a well it's a bit it's a it's a kind of crude buddhist notion really that only mm-hmm. in annihilation do you achieve anything like you know union with uh union with reality that, that you're seeking because it must necessarily be so because to to even you know act as an organism one must have a sense of being separate from the entirety of reality just to maintain your metabolic functions i mean that's just something you have to do um, yeah. So yeah, it's only in the moment <laughs> of death that you can truly, yeah. you can really truly surrender to it. And that's, that's like real kind of like, you know, I mean, I don't know. It, it's like inventing Buddhism. It reminds me of the, uh, there was a story a few years ago about a, uh, a guy who published a, uh, an article in a medical journal about how to analyze certain, uh, curves that you'll get like in some, you know, readings or whatever. And he had basically invented calculus. <laughs> 
to like talk about like how to calculate these curves and everything. And some people point, you know, people then point out like, well, I mean, this is a you know, a real achievement there, buddy. But you know, Newton got there first. Um, I was I just think that's very funny. But that kind of I don't know. That just brought this to mind that like this kind of like sense of what is alienating this you know the conception of self and how does it go away well with the annihilation of self is yeah, uh, yeah it's, it's kind of hitting upon the same vein yeah it, it it really is and like i i'm not i think we were talking about this off air um you know when we were finishing up uh lyrical ballads mm-hmm. i i'm not certain to what extent wordsworth was familiar with Eastern metaphysics, but I know for a fact that Emerson and Thoreau were familiar. With yeah, yeah. Thoreau yeah. throughout Walden has um, references to the Bhagavad Gita and several kind of Buddhist notions, and um, it's that that those ideas seem to be lurking within transcendentalism. And and the romantics, whether the romantics are are, are aware of it or not, yeah, I, yeah. I my suspicion is that it came in through um, German philosophy because yeah. German philologists had a vested interest. Shoot, I may be getting my time periods mixed up, but I know that German philologists in the late 18th and 19th centuries had an interest in translating. Um, a lot of, I think there were Vedic texts mm-hmm. and Buddhist texts into Western languages. Um, so I, I wouldn't be surprised. I, again, my apologies. I, I don't <laughs> want any pedantic critics. To we're just jump exactly. We're just right. saying this sounds like a plausible scenario to us. And if you do know, you know, if you do have any insight, yeah, we'd be happy to know. hear from you. Yeah. What I do know is that Schopenhauer uh, really <laughs> dug Hinduism. Right. And I think that was coming from this larger trend in German philology in the late 18th, early 19th century. Yeah. But undergrad was a long, long time ago, and <laughs> there's been um, much mental damage and trauma since. Anyway, <clears throat> to get back to it, uh, yeah, that seems to be lurking in here. And, and I think he's, he's opening, he's, he's taking Milton's verse form. He's taking the blank verse form. Mm-hmm. He's got these echoes of Milton and the echoes of Milton get even more explicit as you go on. But he's got these echoes of Milton with the again, again, again. And he's, he's sort of reiterating the fact that he's coming back to this place. The speaker is coming back to this place. Mm-hmm. So it's been five years, time has passed, age has done its thing, and this is coming back to this place. And and that whole first section is engaged in painting a pretty picture. Mm-hmm. It's it's landscape painting. You know? Mm-hmm. Alright, and then <clears throat> it switches. <clears throat> or at least it, it doesn't switch, but it, it moves into something else. It says Though absent long, these forms of beauty have not been to me as is a landscape to a blind man's eye, but often lonely rooms amid the den of towns and cities I've owed to them in hours of weariness, sensation sweet, felt in the blood and felt along the heart and passing even into my pure mind with tranquil restoration. Okay. So, even though he hasn't been here, anytime he goes back to those troubling cities and towns... Mm -hmm. He draws with him the memory of this place, and look at what it does. I have owed to them in hours of weariness, sensation sweet, felt in the blood and felt among the heart, and passing even into my pure mind with tranquil restoration. Um, <clears throat> I see this, <clears throat> and this is my own, I guess, um, this is my own hobby horse, I suppose. But <laughs> yeah. I, I see this as a, a moment of articulating what essentially becomes the 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 taken for granted aspect of poetry from this point on. Mm-hmm. This is what I mean when he says that that the verse performs a therapeutic function. Mm-hmm. You follow? Yeah, 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 and. And this, I guess, is what um, the the critic we were talking about last time again uh, gets at 
uh, Jerome again, maybe we talked about it. I can't remember. If we did or not. <laughs> Jerome again did a book critiquing um, the the romantic burying of the rhetoric, burying of the the rhetorical um, in favor of, <clears throat> I guess, this claim for. Uh, the actual, like the experience of the poem is the experience of the thing. Well, I guess this is what he's talking about. Yeah. Um, this is a moment where he says the experience of the poem is this virtual reality, which performs the therapeutic function. It's tranquil restoration. Now, I, I think that moves away from the poem being uh, a direct argument, a direct rhetorical argument and more for being an indirect rhetorical argument, but it's trying to affect something. Hmm. And it strikes me that <clears throat> the wasteland modernist poem par excellence <laughs> is doing something very, very similar, hmm. that it's trying not to make a, an explicit rhetorical argument, but affect emotive well, it's not tranquil restoration, but to affect change through, I guess, affective response. Mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> affective response in order to do a thing in the reader in this sort of intimate one-to-one -one kind of way. Yeah. We haven't moved away from that. Yeah. I mean, I was, I, I was just kind of reflecting on the fact that like, that's, I don't know what one reads assuming uh, a poet exactly. is attempting to affect themselves, right? I mean, that's, I mean, that's how, so much what we talk about on the show also. Like, you know, yeah. how, how we experienced, uh, how it made, quote, how it made you feel, end quote, you know, which yes. is, which is a rich and fascinating thing to talk about. But, uh, I, it's just kind of, you're right, taken for granted. Absolutely. It's the, it's the landscape, but like you don't even see it. And, and I think that, that Wordsworth wants to affect that change. <clears throat> In this therapeutic way that reading the poem will have this, this function, mm -hmm. it will bring you back to yourself. It will, it will heal some kind of alienation. Now, <clears throat> I think the alienation that he sees is threefold. And perhaps this is just an effect of living in an industrialized society. We haven't even moved away from this alienation. Okay. So it's an alienation, um, of the self with the self. So you become alienated from yourself. And you just become this horrible, miserable bastard. You become alienated from your community. Yeah. Um, you isolated and alone and, you know, you become a grumbly bastard to the rest of everyone around you because there are also these sort of like alienated others that you feel, you know, disconnected from and alienated from the physical landscape itself, mm -hmm. alienated from the world in that kind of like physical metaphysical way that I think Milton was, was, um, also identified. Hmm. Yeah. Well, that's what he says. Feelings too of unremembered pleasure, such perhaps as may have had no trivial influence on that best portion of a good man's life, is little nameless unremembered act of kindness and of love. Nor less I trusted them I may have owed another gift of aspect more sublime, that blessed mood in which the burden of the mystery, in which the heavy and weary weight of all this unintelligible world is lightened, that serene and blessed mood in which the affections gently lead us on, until the breath of this corporeal frame and even the motion of our human blood almost suspended, we are laid asleep in body and become a living soul, while with an eye made quiet by the power of harmony and the deep power of joy we see into the life of things. I mean, that's his beautiful hippie moment. I <laughs> I was going to say, it's really, yeah. I mean, that's uh, like, don't fear the Reaper style, you know? Yeah. <laughs> it's like a, that beautiful kind of dirtbag wisdom. <laughs> dirtbag wisdom. I may have to quote you on that. Oh. Um, <laughs> but yeah. no, I mean, you're right. It's, it's a really, it's a, well, it's a, well, as he said, an aspect more sublime. It's a sublime passage. That's a, yeah, you know, it's the blessed mood being repeated there. Like the, and that's because it's inducing the blessed mood and making real, I don't yeah. know. That's, that's, uh, yeah. So in, in these lonely places in the mid, uh, in, in the mid, uh, and mid the den of towns and cities, I've owed to them in hours of weirdness, sensation sweet. And so it brings him back to himself. And then feelings too of unremembered pleasures, such perhaps as may have had no trivial influence on that best portion of a good man's life, his little nameless unremembered acts of kindness and of love. So <clears throat> the, the mental 
bringing together of self and world back into this this pastoral place also has the effect of bringing you back to yourself, which also has the effect of bringing you closer to the community. Those unremembered acts of kindness and of love, the the sort of um, just the spontaneous generosity of holding the door for someone, or, yeah. or, or 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 sharing a sandwich with someone, or 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 just the, those tiny little things that we do. Mm-hmm to cultivate relationships with the people around us, you know, mm-hmm. um, <clears throat> those are the things that sort of bring everything back together. So that's what I'm talking about. That sort of like three part alienation. Mm-hmm. It's an alienation of self from self, self from world and self from others. And <clears throat> the virtual rea- the, the, the memory of this place can, can heal that and I think he thinks that the poem as a virtual reality version of that can also heal that alienation. Mm-hmm. And it can do this other thing. It can get you to touch the beyond. Yeah. Um, now, this is Wordsworth all over, and he elaborates on this in, in many later poems. But... <clears throat> That serene and blessed mood in which the affections gently lead us on until the breath of this corporeal frame and even the motion of our human blood almost suspended, we are laid asleep in body and become a living soul. While with an eye made quiet by the power of harmony and the deep power of joy, we see into the life of things. If we strip away our cynicism and doubt and all those things that hold us back, deep down, Wordsworth seems to believe that we are good people, Mm -hmm. that... That if you can just sort of put aside um, the the sort of accumulated socialized stress, then deep down, if you just trust your inner feelings and trust that who you are and what you are is a good person, then you will do the right thing and you will be okay. Mm-hmm. Um, at certain moments, he he really seems to believe that and. I always find it disarming. Yeah. And if you can just sort of shed that cynicism and shed that, that, that darkness and just get back to that, that sort of trusting part of yourself to trust yourself and to trust the world and to just be okay being in it. Mm-hmm. That's when you can see into the life of things. That's when you can have that transcendental moment. Yeah. Now, are you ready for Satan? Let's bring him. Let's bring him on stage. Our our main man. <laughs> <laughs> we spent, we spent so much time with him in this literature. Sorry. <laughs> uh, no, tell tell me if you recognize this at all. If this be but a vain belief, yet oh, how often darkness and amid the many shapes of joyless daylight, when the fretful stir unprofitable and the fear of the world have hung upon the beatings of my heart, how often, spirit, have I turned to thee, O Sylvan? Why thou wanderest through the woods? How oft has my spirit turned to thee? Do you see Satan in there? A literal direct quotation from Paradise. I was going to say, like, that's from one of his from one of his uh, monologues. I, I oh, early on, isn't it? Um, it's the very first one. Okay, yeah, okay, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh wow! If, if thou beest he, I knew in heaven, but oh, how changed! Right, right. <laughs> so he he literally draws on Satan's first speech. Um, in order to talk about, you know, the, the sort of accumulation of, of, you know, despair, if this be but a vain belief yet, oh, how oft, if, if Mm -hmm. this is a vain belief that, um, you know, maybe I can see and feel into what is the beyond and then he has that self-interruption. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's what Satan does. Satan interrupts himself. We were talking about the grammar of Satan. Um, Satan's gra- his, his sentences don't parse. Mm. Well, Satan interrupts himself because he's overcharged with emotion and overcharged with pain and sorrow. Wordsworth, or, or the Wordsworth speaker here, is overcharged with, with joy and awe mm-hmm. and that sense of the sublime, if this be but a vain belief. And yet I felt it. And if I felt it, how can it be be fake? Mm-hmm. 
Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. You know? So, uh, yeah, he's drawing on Milton <laughs> again and again. <laughs> okay, <laughs> So he does something fun here. He says, and now with gleams of half-extinguished thought, with many recognitions, dim and faint, and somewhat of a sad perplexity, the picture of the mind revives again. So going back to this place, even though you're sort of like older and wiser, it's like recharging the battery. Mm -hmm. So the picture of the mind revives again. I've got it back in my mind, and I can take it back with me and remember it again if I ever need it. Well, here I stand not only with a sense of present pleasure, but with pleasing thoughts that uh, that in this moment there's life and food for future years. I'm going to use this scene again, yeah, in order to you know recharge myself. He's doing these. He's doing it's, his daily affirmations. Like it's yeah uh, to be a little flip about it, but I mean like that's a, a kind of that kind of pursuit, I suppose. Yeah, I I, I think so, and it, and. Again, it's the tranquil restoration that I come back to. Mm-hmm. This is this is healing. And so I dare to hope, though change, no doubt, from what I was when first I came among these hills, when like a row I bounded o'er the mountains <clears throat> by the side of the deep rivers and the lonely streams, wherever nature led, more like a man flying from something that he dreads than one who sought the thing he loved. All right. So he's doing a couple of things here. Um, he remembers his youthful energy. Mm-hmm. He remembers what it was like to... Um, sort of be younger and be flying through here. And it, it's not clear to me, you know, I think this can go either way. I, I think this is uh, both sort of dreadful and painful, but also exhilarating and exuberant. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah. Well, I mean, it's the, it's the kind of energy that comes from, again, you know, well, like you're flying from something he dreads. It's just the, the kind of vigor that, must have an outlet and that in itself is a kind of goad and it, 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 and drive for no real purpose <laughs> unless of course you <laughs> give it one, but, but that kind of, that, that kind of, uh, you know, exil- like you said, exhilaration and, and need to act and, and, and fly. Yeah. Yeah. Welcome to being a 20 year old dude. Right. Um, <laughs> exactly. Doing, doing something just to do it, you know? Yeah. So he remembers the energy and power he once had for nature. Then the coarser pleasure of my boyish days and their glad animal movements all gone by to me was all in all. I cannot paint what then I was. The sounding cataract haunted me like a passion, the tall rock, the mountain and the deep and gloomy wood, their colors and their forms were then to me an appetite, a feeling and a love that had no need of a remoter charm by thought supplied or any interest of borrowed from the eye. Okay. So he didn't need to stop and think because thinking does what Daniel? Oh, it's, it's, that's just the, that's the source of all alienation is thinking. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> so this is him thinking back to his Titanic Edenic self. And the Edenic self was that self that had all this youthful energy mm-hmm. that was connected to the natural world in this weird way because he was not conscious. Hmm. Well, okay, not self-conscious. Right, right. I guess if you're running through the mountains, you have to be conscious. <laughs> Once again, but I think it's, it's that distinction between awareness, I think, and con- and, and, yeah. Yeah, and consciousness, we might say. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think this is kind of a fascinating moment because, you know, it hits on nostalgia mm-hmm. and, and the way that nostalgia um, 
it's soft it, or or it 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 creates hard edges where there were none. It's um, it makes the past look simpler than it was. Mm-hmm. It, it makes things look uncomplicated. And why does it do that? You know, why do you think things were so much simpler, you know, back in that era when, you know, you were growing up? It's because you were five and you weren't <laughs> conscious of anything right. that was going on. And then people were generally very nice to you. Like it's, you know, yeah. everyone around you was real nice to you because you were a child. <laughs> yeah. Uh, everybody was nicer back then. Right. Um, right. Yeah. Well, not really. Um, <laughs> but I think there is a kind of nostalgia here, but it, it's not necessarily a damaging, it, it's not the kind of, it's not the same kind of nostalgia that I think you find in a lot of more damaging political movements. Hmm. Does that make sense? Sure. No, I, yeah, it's, yeah. It, it seems like a more clear eyed nostalgia to me. Hmm. That it's, it's recognizing change at the same time as it wishes it could go back, but it, it, there's this recognition that going right. back to the that there is no unconscious, right? There is no going back that it cannot, yeah, yeah, that it cannot be right. Yeah. But I, I think that's the thing. It's looking back to an unalienated time and it was unalienated because unself-aware mm-hmm. that time has passed. <laughs> well, there you go. You can't go back. Right. <laughs> that time has passed and all its aching joys are now no more and all its dizzy raptures, not for this faint eye, nor mourn, nor murmur. All right. So even though you can't go back, this isn't cause for despair. For uh, other gifts have followed for such loss, I would believe abundant recompense. So what's the recompense for the loss of this kind of like youthful energy in connection with the natural world? Mm-hmm. For I've learned to look on nature not as in the hour of thoughtless youth, but hearing oftentimes the still sad music of humanity, nor harsh nor grating, though of ample power to chasten and subdue. I can, I can now look at the bad times mm-hmm. and not be broken by them. I can, I can see the world more clearly in a way I'm not turning away from it, but I can, I can turn my eye to it and be aware yeah. and understand it and not be broken just by, by the pain. Just the right. Just by its perception. Yeah. <clears throat> and I felt a presence that disturbs me with the joy of elevated thoughts a sense sublime of something far more deeply interfused. And along with that, I've also got this sort of sneaking awareness or this feeling of an interconnectedness between all things Mm -hmm. that there is some kind of holistic cosmological, well, interconnectedness Mm -hmm. whose dwelling is the light of setting suns and the round ocean and the living air and the blue sky and in the mind of man it's something that flows through all things, a motion and a spirit that impels all thinking things, all objects of all thought and rolls through all things. So tell me why this scared the hell out of Coleridge. <laughs> right. Well, it's, uh, it's heretical for one. Um, <laughs> hell yeah. It is, it is, that is deeply, huh? So we're, we're looking at a, a pantheism. Mm-hmm. Where the substance of God is within all things, it rules through all things. It is not identical with things, but mm-hmm. God is present in all things and in, 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 and in the things, not just God is omnipresent in that he's omniperceptive or something, but like any object you manipulate has God in it. As do you. Um, yeah. Yeah. So that's pretty off the reservation when it comes to <laughs> Protestant Christianity. <laughs> yeah. The, this... Oh, I'm sorry. Apologies for using the term uh, off the reservation. I, it, that's, yeah, that's yeah. an old expression. I should scratch with my lexicon, but uh, what it, it goes, uh, it goes far afield, I would say. Yeah. It, this is, this is not Christianity. I mean, yeah. this, this is this is pretty far from um, any kind of normative Christianity. I mean, is is it just me or does it strike you as like somewhat Gnostic even? 
you know. Right. Well, in a sense of the there being a spark of the divine to be rescued, you know, from things. But I, yeah. I think it's all it's all actually much too affectionate and and oriented toward the natural world to be Gnostic. <laughs> I would no, think. true, true, because that would be like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. But I'd, unless unless it's that version of Gnosticism that wants to see the natural world is also containing the essence of the divine. Right, right. And of course, using right. using a term like Gnostic, you're opening up a can of worms every time. But anyway, yeah, okay. So I I I, I withdraw. <laughs> Um, but yeah, it's, it's definitely pantheistic and it's definitely, um, this kind of weird cosmological oneness. Like I said, this is his hippie Paul, Mm -hmm. you know, but again, the experience of, of being in this place can inspire that. And I think what Wordsworth is trying to get at is that the poem is a virtual reality, which can do that to the reader. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That if you cannot be here feeling this thing, then through my articulation in the poem, you can see it in your eye and you can feel it through the affective response. And you can have this same sensation so that you too can feel the oneness and be one. Therefore, am I still a lover of the meadows and the woods and mountains and of all that we behold from this green earth, of all the mighty world of eye and ear, both what they have create and what perceive, well pleased to recognize in nature and the language uh, of the scene, uh, of the sense, the anchor of my purest thoughts, the nurse, the guide, the guardian of my heart and soul of all my mortal, my moral being. <clears throat> okay. Um, now, whenever I teach this poem, mm-hmm. I, I always get the kind of backlash, you know, he's just a narcissist. He's not here feeling things. He's just boring us with all his feelings. He's not. Mm-hmm. Because look at what he does in the last section. Nor perchance if I were not thus taught, should I the more suffer my genial spirits to decay. For thou art with me here upon the banks of this fair river. Thou, my dearest friend, my dear, dear friend. And in thy voice, I catch the language of my former heart and read my former pleasures in the shooting lights of thy wild eyes. All right. So this gets into a weird, complicated thing. And this is where I maybe get into some strange territory. Mm-hmm. But hear me out. All right. <laughs> um, <clears throat> I, I had this um, kind of inkling. Um, all right. So first of all, within the scope of the poem – uh, he's speaking, the, the speaker speaking to his sister. This was based on, an, uh, an, an actual hike that, um, William and Dorothy Wordsworth took together. Mm-hmm. So within the, the, the scope of the poem, who he's speaking to is his sister. But I had this thought when I was doing my dissertation and, and playing around with poetics and looking at the way that contemporary, like 21st century American poets, use the apostrophe mm-hmm. that there seems to be this like weird indirect direct address like apostrophe <clears throat> in poetics is when you're you're speaking like the poem in the poem is speaking to someone or something who's not there mm-hmm. so it's a method of direct address turning to the second person um where uh you know the second person is this imagined object or imagined person usually within the scope of the poem. But um, there's this way in which some use of the second person can have this weird other effect of indirectly drawing the reader into the position of being the person or thing that is apostrophized. Mm-hmm. D- does this make sense? Yes, yes. So when Wordsworth or when the speaker in the poem is saying you or thou, you know, that's the, the archaic form, uh, the, the, the archaic form, informal you, he's saying it to his sister, but he's also saying it indirectly to us, the reader, which would kind of prove my case that this poem is about reestablishing connection between the world around us via the virtual reality of the poem mm-hmm. and the community be, via the virtual reality of the poem. This is uh, inviting you into our world and sharing this moment with us and you can be a part of this. Mm. Now I was 
trying to explain this to my dissertation director, and he thought I was a lunatic. <laughs> but God damn it. Two years after I finished my dissertation, Jonathan Culler wrote a book on poetics, which articulates exactly this. Oh, no. Oh. So, so I'm not as crazy. Jonathan Culler, um, he, he sort of wrote the book on structuralist poetics and then got into post-structural poetics. And um, he, he did a fantastic book a few years back that was just too late for me to be able to use it. That would have like clearly uh, articulated my, my thesis and my dissertation. Mm, yeah. Um, but it's on lyric theory and he has this whole section where he says, you know, a long, long time ago, I had this idea about how the apostrophe functions and I think I can explain it now. I'm like, God damn it. If only I'd had that chapter. Um, but it, he, he argues something along those lines that, um, the, the apostrophe really kind of functions as this way of putting the reader in the position of being the person who is being addressed, the thing that is being addressed. And so <clears throat> what I think the poem is doing by the end in turning to the second person is not just within the poem turning to, you know, the sister figure in order to, you know, work out its math. And sort of bless the sister uh, onward, but it's also doing the same to us in a way. Mm -hmm. So it's becoming a, a sort of virtual community. Um, <clears throat> so you were with me. You were here with me, and we experienced this thing together. And in thy voice, I catch the language of my former heart and read my former pleasures in the shooting lights of thy wild eyes. Oh, yet a little while, may I behold in thee what I was once, my dear, dear sister. You're younger than me, and you have that same kind of youthful energy that I used to have. And I can see what I used to be in you. Mm -hmm. And this prayer I make, knowing that nature never did betray the heart that loved her. Tis her privilege through all the, the years of this our life to leave from joy to joy. For she can so inform the mind that is within us, so impressed with quietness and beauty, and so feed with wanty thoughts that neither evil tongues, rash judgments, nor the sneers of selfish men, nor greetings where no kindness is, nor all the dreary intercourse of daily life shall e'er prevail against us, or disturb our cheerful faith that all which we behold is full of blessings. And um, I'm I'm going to let you know that nature, if you really, really trust it, if you trust the world, if you trust yourself, if you just let go and, and have faith that everything will work out in some way, shape or form, then you can you can brush past all of that alienation. Mm -hmm. Um, therefore, let the moon shine on thee in thy solitary walk, and let the misty mountain winds be free to blow against thee. And in after years, when these wild ecstasies shall be matured into a sober pleasure, when thy mind shall be a mansion for all lovely forms, thy memory be as a dwelling place for all sweet sounds and harmonies, oh, then if solitude or fear or pain or grief should be thy portion, with what healing thoughts of tender joy wilt thou remember me? And these my exhortations. Let, let my engagement with you here be a source of joy that can hopefully revive you when you suffer. Right. That's, that's so touching. Yeah. It's, it, I mean, I, I think there's a, a real sort of authentic joy in being with a person that he's, he's really sort of expressing. Nor perchance if I should be where I no more can hear thy voice nor catch from thy wild eyes these gleams of past existence. I think he's he's addressing mortality there. Mm -hmm. If it ever comes a time when, hey man, I'm not with you anymore. Right. And um <clears throat> you know, I think about some of those those times I've had with my sons, right? Mm -hmm. I I they're not aware I mean, I don't think they really understand in that way that we understand as parents that we are going to die yes, and we will be severed from them. And, and, and I think about, you know, those precious moments that we have together that, that <coughs> we can build on that. Hopefully what you remember will be these times mm -hmm. 
and and not the time that I screamed at you because you unbuckled your 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 stuff from your car seat and jumped in the back. Right. Around, right? <laughs> that 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 on that uh, on bounce will the and I I think about that a lot as well because it's something I realized before. I guess you know when when uh, my spouse and I were deciding to uh, to you know have have a child, yeah. and I was thinking about. Like, you know, the, the, the experience of, of being someone's father. And I thought, I found myself kind of reflecting on my own childhood. And, and again, maybe it's just the haze of time or what have you. But all in all, like, I remember thinking, like, my dad always seemed like he was really glad to have us around. He seemed like, mm-hmm. it seemed like he was having a good time. I think I can do that. I think that's something I can, I can do for <laughs> her. Um, so yes, I, I think that that's, that's, that's a beautiful sentiment that I, that I share that like this kind mm-hmm. of like, uh, well, you, you know what I was actually reminded of with this was, uh, I mean, this motif of immortality almost, you know, a, a sense of immortality or eternal youth coming yeah. from observing those around you and appreciating yeah. the, their, their own unique youth that they're experiencing. Yeah. Um, goes all the way back to Gilgamesh. Um, yeah. And I don't think I'm not saying you draw a line throughout all of culture from, from anytime the sentiment has been expressed. What I what I mean is that I, I think that that's a that's a very deep rooted kind of 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 human experience and that expresses itself again and again throughout time and literary expression. Um, but that kind of because there's a, a a point in the Epic of Gilgamesh where, of course, you know, the the the, the main thrust of the poem is Gilgamesh's quest for a, a flower at the bottom of the ocean which will grant him immortality because he's so torn up about his best bro in the world Enkidu biting it um yeah and but he gets to a place it's a tavern it's a tavern keeper uh woman who he's explaining what he's trying to do he has to get someplace to go do this and and there's a whole monologue from this tavern keeper woman admonishing Gilgamesh you know this great and powerful Gilgamesh king of Uruk you know and just telling him like no you know mm-hmm. I'm going to tell you right now what to do with Gilgamesh that's not where immortality is um, and it's a monologue about the, the feeling of finding joy in your children is the only immortality that the gods have allotted humans. Um, mm. and that, I mean, and it's, that was what I was immediately put in mind of here with even looking at someone like, say, your younger sibling, like not necessarily a, a generational, you know, kind of a, a gap mm. in time, but even so much as a few years and, you know, years that you know you've had and have changed or, you know, your own youth has slipped away in some way. And, and finding that same, uh, that same joy, that same rejuvenation, uh, in it. It's, was, you're right. It's very touching. It's very, um, I don't, I mean, sentimental <laughs> and in a good way. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and then he wraps it up. And that I, so long a worshiper of nature, came hither unwearied in that service. Rather say with warmer love, oh, with far deeper zeal of holier love. Nor wilt thou then forget that after many wanderings, many years of absence, these steep woods and lofty cliffs and this green pastoral landscape were to me more dear, both for themselves and for thy sake. I mean, that that, that really is a, a, a sweet moment. Mm-hmm. This wouldn't have been what it was if it wasn't for the fact that we were together here. Mm-hmm. And um, that that's what I mean. Like, <clears throat> I I get why my students say, well, it's just his thoughts and feelings. Well, yeah, but anything you read is just their <laughs> right. thoughts and feelings. What, what the hell are you going to write, buddy? Um, <laughs> yeah. But it's, it's a really touching expression of how powerful it is, you know, mm-hmm. to be in a place where the batteries can be recharged, but to be there also in fellowship with another person that you care about. Mm-hmm a whole lot about um it's it's the community aspect Mm -hmm. that i think uh i always come back to in this poem i mean the transcendentalism is fun and the hippie moments are great (laughs) but But i i I think something that's jumped out since we've talked about it and thank you so much claude for a very uh an incredibly learned and uh an insightful uh breakdown on the poem i i i have i'm on much firmer ground with it um but i think what's really sort of struck me the most is that sense of like you mentioned of invitation of the reader into yeah into this this moment and i think that that is 
because you and again and maybe this is something that you can you can tell me when whenever this dates from as a kind of heuristic but uh there's this uh notion that the purpose of poetry is to transmit well i guess we're talking about the affectation right but like a poet is attempting to capture a a a feeling and a thought you know as as much as they can and express that as clearly as they can um and the um this that's almost like kind of the next step i guess is like it being not only am i going to show you this picture well it's like the take on me video (laughs) not only are you going to see this comic book i'm going to reach out of it and pull you into it so we can be together here Uh, (laughs) yeah yeah i mean that's really it's this is that next step it's that almost um it's it's enacting that z dimension right on your cartesian coordinate plane it's it's kicking it out <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's. I really do think this is an articulation of the whole project, mm-hmm. was this, which is the idea that the poem can be a, a virtual reality experience that can draw the reader in and affect some kind of, you know, therapeutic, um, some therapeutic affect, mm-hmm. right? That it, it, it can work on on the reader in a way <clears throat> to bring us back to the best part of ourselves. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I don't know that all poetry is intended to do that. I don't know if all poetry needs to be intended to do that. Um, it's, it's a beautiful sentiment though. Mm-hmm. And, and I think, <clears throat> I, I mean, for me, that's, that's why the poem is so important to this volume. I, I think structuring it, you know, the, the thing I've been trying to think about is like, why structure it like this? Why start with <laughs> that and then end with this with all these? I was going to know, say, like, it does, it does seem like, you know, not opening with the, with the Tinger Abbey, but instead closing with it, it almost reads like, so you're probably wondering what all that was about you just read. <laughs> <laughs> it kind of is it kind of is but it's sort of like uh uh instead of opening with the thesis you close with the th- the thesis mm-hmm. you sort of open with this rocky thorny strange thing which is very challenging yeah that that really disrupts any expectation that you might have and then kind of like throws you for a loop in terms of okay what is this thing what is this thing doing what is this volume about and then as you maneuver through the volume and get used to these voices and get used to pay, like bearing witness to the voices, it comes to this conclusion about, you know, what all of this stuff is supposed to be doing. And, and, and that's, that's how I think it's structured. Now, the, the later volume is structured a little bit differently. And I guess that's what we're going to be looking at next time. Um, the, the 1800 edition of Lyrical Ballads, which restructures some things, puts some things in different places, um, and has, you know, the sort of famous preface. And, um, not the advertisement, but the preface, and then adds a whole bunch of poems in the second volume. Mm-hmm. So I guess that's what we'll be doing next time is taking a look at that. Yeah, yeah. So I'm, I'm well. I'm very curious with a with a fuller understanding of the, you know, the uh, the the mission as laid out by Mister Wordsworth. I'm I'm now interested to approach these kind of poems new to me. Um, yeah, I love that I'm reading all this in publishing order, by the way. That's, that's how I chose to read the Conan stories. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and the two are much alike. <laughs> exactly. But no, I, I'm, I'm really excited to, 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 I don't know, to approach these poems in the spirit that Wordsworth has kind of laid out. I'm willing to go, I'm willing to go there with them. You know what? I'll, I'll take the dive. I'll see, I'll see where, I'll see yeah. where you can take us. 
All right, cool, cool, cool. So I guess uh, make sure you're if if you're not if you the listener are not too um, exhausted and disgusted with <laughs> lyrical ballads or our reading of lyrical ballads, then stay tuned for next time when we're going to sort of take on the the whole of the eighteen hundred edition. All right, so have a good night. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.